right. <clears throat> <laughs> One more song. Okay. Now that we're out of time, I'd like to say it. <laughs> uh, I want to start by uh, thanking you for uh, having me here tonight. As Cole said, uh, we kind of go far back. Um, I really uh, like, I appreciate your community. Uh, I'm inspired by you guys. I think you're fantastic. And so it's an honor to, to be here. Uh, and get a chance to, uh, quote-unquote, preach at you. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, as Cole said, we uh, first met with the uh, Evangelical Covenant Church, and um, we did spend a lovely week together uh, in Chicago. Uh, we had only really known each other for about uh, five minutes before we started um, sleeping together. And... <laughs> We, um, this is, this is no a, more yeah, <laughs> this is, um, it's, this, this is a true story. It's kind of embarrassing. Uh, the first night I, I snored so loud that your poor pastor got out of his bed and slept on the floor in an attempt to keep the, the, the noise coming from my facial region from reverberating and hitting him in the air. And, and when I woke up in the morning and he, and he told me what happened, I felt terrible. And he's like, no, 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 just remind me of being at home with Kat. It's okay. <laughs> and so then I didn't feel so bad. So uh, Tonight I want to share something with you from uh, the best gospel. Uh, you all know which one's the best, right? Right, Luke. So we're going to look at Luke. Uh, we're going to look at Luke 15. Uh, Jesus is going to tell a couple of parables about being lost. Um, being lost is something that I can relate to quite well. I'm actually kind of an expert at being lost. Uh, I don't mean in like a metaphysical or metaphorical way. I mean, quite literally, I get lost all the time. Uh, this started when I was a small child. I remember going out into the front yard, and I'd get on my big wheel, and I'd ride up and down the street and all around the neighborhood, and then when my little legs got tired of pedaling, I'd walk up, you know, I'd park my big wheel in the driveway, and I'd walk up to the front door, and I'd go, this isn't my house. <laughs> that happened to me a lot. It's, <laughs> it's true. Um, in fact, tonight, uh, as I was driving down here from Seattle, I had um, a little, it was a pretty intense memory uh, of, of getting lost uh, for my first uh, Thanksgiving in Seattle. It was actually, I, I think I may have had a little bit of a PTSD flashback. Uh, my roommate, Jeff, and I, we had moved to Seattle uh, about five months earlier, uh, like, you know, midsummer. And uh, when Thanksgiving came around, um, it had been the longest either one of us had gone without seeing our parents, our, our friends, our family. We were in a new city, a new state, and we just really wanted to go uh, be with family uh, for Thanksgiving. But Jeff was a struggling graphic designer just out of school, and I was a, working in a record store as a record store clerk for minimum wage. So there was no way we were going to be able to afford plane tickets uh, to fly down to California to see our families. And um, so we were really pretty bummed. And 
we had just kind of started getting emotionally prepared for what would probably become the most pathetic Thanksgiving that we had ever experienced. When out of the blue, uh, my friend from college, Belinda Barnett, I don't know why you need to know her last name, but Belinda Barnett um, <laughs> called, and she told me that her sister had moved to Portland, and her parents and her were coming up to Portland for Thanksgiving, and they invited Jeff and I down to spend the weekend with them. And Jeff and I were ecstatic. We were stoked. It wasn't our family, but it was a family. And even better than that, we were going to have a big, fat, giant turkey dinner. Uh, I, told, I told Belinda right away, listen, and this, I, I got stories. Jeff and I, <laughs> Jeff and I eat a lot. And we have eaten people out of food before. Um, <laughs> And so she said, okay, I got it covered. I, I, don't worry. I know this about you guys. I already talked to my family. We're making two of everything. One, one for my family and one for you guys. There's going to be turkey and gravy and mashed potatoes and green beans and rolls and candy yams, cranberry sauce, everything. We'll take care of everything. You guys don't have to bring a darn thing. So Jeff and I, now we're really excited. And as Thanksgiving got closer and closer. We were getting, like, just more and more excited with every coming day. We were, like, giddy, like schoolgirls. We were, like, 8.3 times happier than we had any right to be. <laughs> and so finally, Thanksgiving morning comes around, and we, we hop into my car, and we start heading south. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're talking, and we're laughing, and we're singing along with the radio, and we are just, with every mile, we're getting so excited. This is going to be the greatest thing ever, and we're, it's just great. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jeff screams with sheer delight. A white horse in a field of snow! A white horse in a field of snow. Now, as I think about this, every time I think about this, I think, why did I care about a white horse in a field of snow? I don't even like horses. But at that moment, I was so excited. Oh, my God, where? Is this one-of-a-kind magical beast you call white horse in field of snow? And this was about 10 miles north of Centralia. I think Highway 12 is where I started having the flashbacks today. And, <laughs> and so Jeff starts pointing, over there, over there. And I'm like, I can't see you fogged up the window, you idiot. <laughs> and so he starts wiping off the window. And I'm like, I can't see. For the love of all that is good and holy, roll down your window. So he rolls down his window and he goes, there. And as soon as he rolled down his window, whoosh, something flew out of our car off of the, it was like a, a Harry Potter movie when the Dementors come. Uh, all hope and joy left the car. We looked at each other. And went, was that the piece of paper with the directions? and Belinda's phone number written on it. And so this was, uh, you know, most of you may not remember a world like this, but there used to not be uh, GPS or 
Google Maps or iPhones. This was before even cell phones. So we got off the freeway, we circled back, and we spent the next 45 minutes on the side of the road uh, looking for a white piece of paper in a field of snow. And it was totally fruitless. And so after about 45 minutes, Jeff and I decided to weigh our options. We could turn around and head back to Seattle, but we were already halfway to Portland. And even if we made it back to Seattle, we didn't have Belinda's phone number to call and get new directions. And even if we had all of that, by the time we got back to Seattle and then drove all the way back down to Portland, we would have missed dinner. So I convinced Jeff, let's just go. Like, I've got a good memory. I, I remember... <laughs> I remember a lot of the directions. There's... Um, I remember there's this place down there called, the, like, Dallas or something, and then Belinda's sister lives in an apartment with wood floors. <laughs> Like, we can totally find that. So we head south, and um, we're driving. I'm like, oh, the Dulles, that's it. We get off here, and then there was like a tunnel. I'm like, this is so familiar. There's a stop sign. I'm like, it's the second left. We go. We turn the second left. We turn the corner, and there is this street that is just lined with block after block of apartment buildings. And so it's like, all right, man. We're just going to have to do this the old-fashioned way. Like, we're going door to door. Jeff, <laughs> Jeff and I are from California. I was 23 or something. I had never seen a hardwood floor before. So I figured, we just got to go knock on some doors, and as soon as someone opens it with a hardwood floor, we know we've got the right building. And, <laughs> and so this will be really, really easy. So um, Jeff and I spent the next two hours... Uh, finding out that every single apartment building in Portland has uh, hardwood floors. Uh, we went door to door to door, and as each door opened, we could feel the emanating warmth of a cozy fire inviting us in. Uh, as each door opened, we could smell the turkey in the oven. As each door opened, the sounds of football on the TV cried out to us to come and enjoy the sofa. <laughs> Door after door after door, we explained we were looking for someone. We didn't know their name, but they weren't married. It was a man and a woman. They had family from California visiting, and, and, and her name is Belinda. Is that you? In the end, I just walked down the middle of the street screaming, Belinda! <laughs> we were lost. We had left Seattle over six hours ago. We hadn't had a bite to eat, uh, and we didn't have a red cent between the two of us. And so I had one final idea. Jeff, we'll go over one block. Maybe it was the second left. We'll go over one block. So we get in my car. We pull away from the curb, and instantly I hear a pop. Think, 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 think. 
we got out and there was a big fat screw in my tire. And the air was leaking so quickly that you could hear it. So we had no choice but to race back to Seattle as fast as we could. And as we crossed the bridge from Oregon to Washington, I looked over at Jeff and his head was slumped between his knees and he said, I've never felt so alone. That's what it's like to be lost. It's lonely, it's hungry, it's hopeless, it's disorienting, and that overwhelming desire to find the thing that you're searching for causes you to do some of the dumbest things you will ever do. And it's this experience of being lost that Jesus uses in Luke 15 uh, to explain the character of God to us, the nature of God. Uh, in, in Luke 15, starting with verse 1, it reads like this. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. So let's put this into context. Jesus is hanging out with and eating with uh, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, the people on the margins that no one else was willing to eat with. No one else was willing to share their table with these people. Now, as you may or may not know, table fellowship, uh, meaning who you eat dinner with and where you eat dinner, it was a big deal to the Jews in Jesus' time. Uh, what you ate and who you ate with were key issues in drawing the boundaries and maintaining those boundaries of the socio-religious landscape. Uh, to put that another way, who you ate dinner with determined who was in and who was out. And it was so important to the Jews that they had law after law after law. The Old Testament and their other books, uh, the Talmud, are filled with laws, rules about who it is okay to eat with and who it is not. And Jesus in this story is breaking all of those rules. So Jesus isn't just eating dinner in this scene. Jesus is breaking the religious rules. He's throwing the doors wide open, and he's saying, I don't care if you're a tax collector or a prostitute or a Pharisee. Everyone is welcome here. However, this is not the world that the Pharisees lived in. The Pharisees understood the world very, very differently. Uh, several hundred years before Luke writes this story, um, the nation of Israel was in big trouble. They had lost a bunch of wars, and they had been scattered. They had been taken captive and exiled all over the place. And it was during this time that the Pharisees popped up. This is when the Pharisees came to be. And they were concerned with making sure that Judaism survived this experience of the Jews uh, being forced to mingle with people who weren't them, uh, you could say that the Pharisees were concerned with holiness, um, making sure that the Jews stayed set apart uh, from the pagans that they were forced to live with. But really, the Pharisees were trying to save Judaism. They were trying to uh, keep it alive. The whole Old Testament, uh, that's a hyperbole, but a lot of the Old Testament is about God saying, stay separate, you've got to follow these rules. And the Pharisees, 
during the exile, they're the good guys. The Pharisees keep Judaism alive. If we don't have the Pharisees, then we don't have Judaism. And so the Pharisees understand God as wanting uh, his chosen people separate from the unchosen. Uh, So they express their love for God by following the rules that are already written and creating new rules to make sure that the chosen don't mingle with the unchosen or the sinners or the lost. So back to our story, Jesus is a Jew. Uh, So it was against the religious rules for him to eat with those unchosen sinners that he's choosing to eat with. Um, If these prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors wanted to eat dinner with Jesus, wanted to share table fellowship with him, there was only one thing they could do, according to the Pharisees. They would have to convert to Judaism. Luckily, the Pharisees had a whole process for how one would convert to Judaism. Um, For us, as Christians, if you're here and you wanted to convert to Christianity, I would stand up there and say, hey, come on up. We'd have an altar call, and then you're um, a Christian. It's a little different according to the Pharisees. So let's say you're a tax collector, and you want to become a Jew so that you can eat dinner with Jesus. What would that look like? Well, it would look a lot like that scene from Fight Club where Meatloaf's trying to get into the house, and Brad Pitt chases him off with a broom. Remember that? (laughs) First... I mean, literally, that's what it looks like. (laughs) First, as this tax collector, you would have to find a rabbi. You would go to the rabbi, um, and you would say, I would like to convert to Judaism. And the rabbi would say, um, no. (laughs) Three times, you'd have to go to the same rabbi, and all three times, you would be told no. And if you persisted, enough. If you wanted to be Jewish that bad, you would ask a fourth time. And on the fourth time you asked, the rabbi would say to you, why do you want to convert? Don't you know that Israel is afflicted, oppressed, downtrodden, and rejected, and that tribulations are visited upon us? And if you answered, yes, I know, and I'm unworthy, then the rabbi might decide to help you become a Jew. At that point, he would start training you, formally training you. And this would last anywhere, depending on the rabbi, anywhere from one to three years. At the end of those one to three years, you go to court. And there's three judges, uh, and they're they're rabbis, and they're going to interview you. And if you pass, then comes the good stuff. Circumcision. Immediately following circumcision, you receive an immersion, which is a lot like baptism. After that, there's an offering. You choose um, a new Jewish name, Jim Ben Israel. And finally, there is a public ceremony. And now you can have dinner with Jesus. This is the world of the Pharisees. This is their understanding of God. This is how they express their love for God. Before God will take interest in you, there is a lot of work that you're going to have to do. And roadblocks will be put in your way, and you will be dissuaded. You will ask, and it will not be given to you. 
you will knock and you'll be told to go away at least three times because that is how God works. Do you see that dissonance? The Pharisees see the lost and believe that God wants them to be separate unless the lost go through a multi-year process proving their desire to be Jewish. Jesus sees the lost and he breaks the rules and says, let's have a party. So that's the context of these parables. And the Pharisees are complaining and grumbling. So Jesus turns to them and he says, this is, uh, I'm reading from the Bible now. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and lost one. Wouldn't you leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the lost one until you found it? When found, you can be sure you would put it across your shoulders, rejoicing. And when you got home, call in your friends and neighbors saying, celebrate with me, I found my lost sheep. Count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. Or imagine a woman who has 10 coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and scour the house, looking in every nook and cranny until she finds it? And when she finds it, you can be sure she'll call her friends and neighbors. Celebrate with me. I found my lost coin. Count on it. That's the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. Really, these parables aren't about the lost at all. They're about the shepherd. They're about the woman. They're about the character, the very nature of God, who he is, how he views us, how he acts in relationship to us. In these parables, it's God who takes the action. God goes searching for the lost. The shepherd, the woman, they take the initiative. Jesus and the Pharisees have a very different understanding of the nature of who God is based on how he reacts and relates to the lost. Do the lost deserve what they got? Do they need to work extra hard to get back in, to find their way home? Their way home? Is God indifferent to their plight? He's just sitting somewhere far away waiting for them to do what they need to do? Or is God proactively searching for them? Has God left his place of comfort? Has God left the 99 righteous, the nine righteous to go and find the one lost? The Pharisees would have relished in uh, Jeff's and my Thanksgiving misadventure. Uh, they would have said, go knock on some more doors. Try another neighborhood. Now crawl down the street on your knees. And their God would have remained distant, silent, oblivious to what Jeff and I were going through. The God of Jesus would have been chasing us down. He would have been calling out to us. And when he found us, he would have put us on his shoulders and carried us to the feast. This is who God is. I don't know you guys very well. And that's a very liberal statement, because most of you I met tonight. <laughs> I don't know whether you feel lost or whether you feel like a Pharisee. I don't know if you wake up in the morning going, God can't, he doesn't want me. He can't take me. I don't know if you wake up in the morning and go, I've got to be good. God. They have to be good for God. 
Cole needs to get it together for God. (laughs) Whatever is going on for you, just let it go. Because there's a pardon. This whole thing ends in a pardon. This whole thing ends at the table. This whole thing ends in a feast where everyone is the same, where God is just happy you're there. Amen? Let's pray. God, you uh, are pretty amazing. Some days um, I feel lost, and some days I feel jealous and angry and bitter of my friends who are lost. But either way, you call me to be with you. You call me to sit down at the table with you. You call me to a party. All you want to do is have a party with me. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would help us to let go of everything that keeps us out of that party, whether it's uh, the fear of um, not living up to your expectations or it's the fear that you won't accept us. Help us let go of those expectations. Help us let go of that fear so that we can enter your party. Amen. I think like two blocks. <laughs>